you are, let's lay this baby down. Lofty, you on the guitar, mate? You right, Sco? Yep, standing by. Bertie, you on the bass? Yep, ready to go. All right, here we go then. One, two, three, four. Just two good old boys. Two good old boys. Never meeting no harm. Be sorry, never saw the hand, no hair since the day they was born. Straighten the curves. Straighten the curves. Flatten the heels. The coffee might get him, but the Lord never will. Broadcasting away. Hey everybody and welcome to or welcome back to the Mojo Radio Show. If you are a regular, take a seat on the big red bus we've come to know and love as the Mojo Radio Show. We'll be hitting the road shortly. If you are new, welcome. Thanks for downloading our little radio show. Just to bring you up to speed, what do we do here? We just find interesting people from all walks of life who have their mojo working in or out of work. We extract what they do best to get their mojo working so we can put it into our world to get our mojo working. The driver of the big red bus that we call the Mojo Radio Show, Chief Engineer Robbo, welcome to this week's show. Beep, beep. How are you going? Got us in gear, mate. Ready to roll? Uh, We're in first gear, ready to hit the pedal. (laughs) We never started first gear. (laughs) Oh, well, it's only one coffee, that's why. All right, so the band are on board the bus, new microphones at all. Let's uh, let's wind this thing up, hit the road, put it in the gear. The Mojo Radio Show. Our guest this week is the author of what I think is a must-read for all of us. Bronnie Ware is very well known as the author of the best-selling memoir, The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. It's a book that I've mentioned a load on the show. It's been read by over a million people worldwide, translated into 29 languages. Bronnie sat by the bedside of terminally ill people for several years, and today she takes us through what we need to know in order to not be in the same boat as those people who spent a lot of their time regretting themselves and what they did or didn't do. Bronnie, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Thank you, Gary. Pleasure to be here. Now, when people ask Bronnie what you do, how do you like to reply? (laughs) Depends on the mood, I guess, because (laughs) 
if I say I'm an author, then it's like, oh, you published, oh, what's your book about? Oh, you know, and then it's all about your public profile and people treat you differently because all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're a public person. Um, so, yeah, I mean, sometimes I just say I'm a writer. Sometimes I say I'm an artist. Sometimes I say I'm a homeschooling mum. <laughs> Depends on the mood, but generally... Generally, an author and a speaker. Yeah. Now, tell me something. I first came upon your work from your first book, and I just want to ask you a question about that. You've sure. said that you spent time sitting bedside with people who are in their final moments of life. And what you said that I'm curious about, Bronnie, is that in a very short period of time, you become very close with these people. And I'm just wondering emotionally, like how does it feel when you become so close to somebody so quickly, but in the back of your mind, you know that every conversation, every every pause of silence, you know that it's getting them closer to them leaving. How, emotionally, how does it feel? Well, I mean, I always tried to find the blessings in the relationships or in my situation anyway, because it wasn't an area I consciously chose to go into it, it called me but as um, the conversations continue and our bond would grow so did their pain and so from that perspective the more I grew to love my patients the more I actually wanted them to die because it was the only way they were going to be be out of pain it wasn't like there was any hope for their recovery that would have been certainly my my first prayer for them but because it was obvious that their bodies were closing down and and their pain was increasing or their medication to manage the pain was increasing. Either way, their quality of life was lessening every day. So it was just a fine balance between just being grateful for the time we had and doing a lot of prayers for strength behind the bathroom door, yeah. Have you come to realise that we kind of underestimate time? Like what's your view on time? It's such a, such a precious resource. And the more we can face the fact that we're going to die, the more we actually treasure that resource instead of waste it away. You know, I, I love the Paul Kelly song, I Wasted Time, Now Time Is Wasting Me. And, you know, we're, we're all guilty of, of wasting time. But the more, um, it's, it's not even as we get older because a lot of people I looked after still hadn't considered that they were going to die and how precious their time was until they were so, so ill. So for me, I just use death as a tool for living in the sense that the more we can talk about death as a society and individually and face the fact that we are on limited time, the more we just see this is a precious resource, I am not going to waste one day of it. I'm going to make very conscious decisions on how I spend my time and that's that's actually how I live. One thing I heard you say, which I'm really very curious about, was you said that in, in those very prof- profound conversations, there was no room for trivia. Does that now have an effect on you with your own choice of words, conversations? Yeah. The choice yeah. of silence? Mm. Yes, definitely. I don't... Um, I'm probably a lot more economical with my words and also being an author and learning how to edit (laughs) your expression and learning that you have to edit your expression to say more with less. And I certainly don't waste my energy on idle gossip and 
uh, yeah, I, I just see life as such a precious gift that I don't want to put my time and energy and conversations uh, into trivial things. I mean, there's, there's a lightness to conversations. Not every conversation is is life-changing and we've got to function in day-to-day life. But but certainly, Gary, certainly I, I don't... Um, I don't waste my time on on worry over silly things. I don't waste my conversations over silly things. And I definitely, you know, have said to people, I, I'm sorry, but I, I can't give any more of my energy to this conversation. It doesn't leave me feeling good. I don't want to spend my time this way. That's quite a discipline, isn't it? Mm, yeah, it is. But like anything, you get better with practice. <laughs> Tell me the decision-making process that goes through our minds when we look at that, a life of joy versus a life of regret. How do we navigate that, Bronnie? Uh, Through two things, compassion and gratitude, I believe. Um, Compassion is for ourselves. So regret is really, I've decided along the way, witnessing the anguish and despair of it. So so clearly that it's just a very harsh judgment for ourselves and rather than carry that judgment and, and which then creates regret, I prefer to have compassion for what we could call regrets or mistakes. And so I can look back on, on my life as an example and say, okay, there's certainly things I would have done differently. There's, there's a stack of things I would have done differently. But rather than regret those, I've learned by it. I mean, if you can look back and see something that's a potential regret, you've already evolved past it to even recognise that it is a mistake or it was a mistake. So you're already a different person to who you were there. So I look at that at my old self with compassion and say, okay, I'm human, I'm going to make mistakes, but I'm going to love myself with as much compassion and kindness for all my humanness and frailties and mistakes and I'm going to learn by those things and certainly not going to do them again and and then the other side of the coin is gratitude and it's not about walking through life and saying you know I'm I'm so joyful today when you're having a really shocking day if you're having a terrible day and you've got a lot of tears that need to come out they need to come out but generally it is up to us where we focus our mind and so we can be sad express our feelings whatever but it's up to us how long we wallow in that. And so for me, I recognise the the beauty of life uh, through nature, through the preciousness of time and just through through having so many people I love and receiving love from from so many people and, you know, in my, my, my family and friends and my inner circle especially. And, yeah, so I just think if you can be compassionate with yourself, that helps ease the regret. And if you can focus on the blessings, because no one will ever have everything they want. There'll always be challenges. We're always being expanded to grow and and there's always resistance. So there'll always be a bit of suffering with that. But but the more we can actually stop and think, hang on a sec, especially in Australia, we live in one of the richest countries in the world. We have freedom of choice. You know, we have incredible weather you know we have so many blessings and even if you're not in Australia there are still blessings to be found and I think the more you can focus on that the more joy you bring to your life because then you become more present as well and and you're focusing on whatever's bringing you gratitude whatever you're finding gratitude in on that in that moment is bringing you joy see uh, it's it's uh, 
It's, I think it's a challenge for people, Bronnie. I, I absolutely buy into what you're saying. Is it a challenge for people to keep that front of mind in that I, I guess I'm looking for a trigger and I'm wondering whether your mirror and what you do with your mirror is the trigger to bring back and bring to the front of your mind blessings and gratitude. There's... Um I, I use it in a different way, um, but it's not the main thing I bring back. I, I use the mirror to develop compassion and kindness for myself and to speak to the part of me that, that still needs healing and to build myself up and congratulate myself sometimes. Um, but mostly I, I use the mirror to love myself, to look into my soul and to say, it's okay, you know, I'm sorry for the mistakes I've made. There was nothing wrong with you. You know, this is just a result of your conditioning or this is just a result of your fear on the day or, or whatever. So I've done some really, um, some very deep healing from my past through, through mirror work. But the thing that brings me back more into um, cat capturing my thoughts and and using the tools I know rather than just hearing a podcast and saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that, is meditation. Is that, And I think it's, it's a habit that you develop over time to recognize, to stop your thoughts and own your thoughts as much as possible. So I began meditating back in the days of cassettes. Um, my first meditation guidance was on cassettes. And then over time, I ended up on the Vipassana path, and I've and, and it's still the the technique I practice. But I've also done other techniques prior to that as well. And but because I meditate daily, I I'm used to capturing my thoughts because as soon as you sit down, you may drop into a really great state straight away, or your mind goes, oh great, let's okay, let's choose colours to paint the house next or whatever, you know. <laughs> and so it's like, oh, okay, yeah, well, that colour's good, that colour's, oh, hang on a sec, Ronnie, you're supposed to be meditating. Come back, back to your breath, back, you know. And so the more you, you actually consciously pull yourself back in meditation, which I've done for a few decades now, the more you can apply that in day-to-day life. And so what I find now, I mean, there's still old stuff will come up and it's it's part of our, our human journey. And so sometimes I'll find myself imagining a really awful scenario of something where I'm just feeling really down. So imagine the worst case scenario coming about and then I'll stop and think and think, right, this is an old story. This belongs to a young Bronnie who didn't believe she was worthy of whatever or she didn't know how to bring something better in. That's not the life you actually live anymore, Bronnie. This is an old story. It's familiar. You can sit in it for as long as you want and you'll be at home in it because it's familiar. But the actual life you've been living for the last 10 years or whatever is actually your new story and fits you much better these days than the old story. So I tend to stop and recognize what story is going on in my head and and then I can say, oh, okay, I'm not giving any more energy to this. I'm actually going to focus back on my new story because my new story is, is actually working. And the only way I can do that has been develop the practice of catching my thoughts and meditation has been the tool for that. You had two two beautiful questions that I think tie into that, Bronnie. You said you, you'd look at yourself in the mirror and say, who am I? 
and where have I gone? And I just find that really profound because it just seems that we're getting swept up in other people's worlds. Are we forgetting sort of who we are and in some cases where we've gone? Yes, both, both. We we need to stop and look at what we've come from to who we are and rather than always looking forward to what we want because sometimes we've, in most cases, we've come a long way in ourselves and, and if we can actually stop and look at that and say, wow, actually, I am getting somewhere in life, you know, good on you, you've, you've healed this part of yourself or healed that part, but certainly the other side of it is, I don't pay much attention to anyone anymore and <laughs> it's very freeing. It's, um, you know, I only follow things on, the only people I follow on social media are either friends or people who truly inspire me or nature. Like um, I, I, I use my Instagram page almost always just as a, a public photo album. I don't, um, I occasionally sell things, you know, um, let my followers know I've got a lovely product to share. But generally, I want it to just be a nice, visually pleasing thing. And and Facebook as well, I always just, um, all my quotes have a nature element to them because nature's you know, our greatest teacher. And so I think for me, again, it comes back to that using death as a tool for living because if if you realise you are going to die, you care less what people are going to think about you because you realise how precious your time is. So it's that full circle back to time. So because my time is so precious and I'm conscious of that, I just think, well, okay, at the end of my life, I'm really not going to care about me making one grammatical error or how people are perceiving me. I'm not going to waste all my energy trying to explain myself in a world where people are making assumptions all the time. I'm going to stay committed to creating my life free of regret and that means just to keep doing my own thing and walking to my own rhythm. And so death helps me all the all the time, every single day, and it's it's so liberating to let go of how you're perceived because I'm, I'm sure there's, there's plenty of assumptions. I know when the Five Regrets article came out, there were some very vocal assumptions about me and how wrong I was to ask people about regrets. And that's not at all how it happened. And um, so I gave up trying to explain myself because I thought, well, it's not going to, it's only going to ruin the quality of my life in the meantime. I'm going to do the things that bring me joy, not the things that that try and make me make me understood in a world that I'll never be understood in anyway. Bronnie, I'm going to take a musical interlude. I'm going to take an off-ramp down the Bronnie Ware Highway right now. And I want to ask you a question which I haven't heard you talk about before. You said that in one time of your life, you dreamt of being by a campfire and you were singing with the great Johnny Cash. Mm, mm. It was a dream. It was a dream I had, like a sleep. A sleeping dream. What was the song? Oh, uh, we're singing Jackson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> of course. You know. Though I do also like the June Carter, uh, Carter Cash song, you long-legged guitar-picking man. I, I really like that song as well. But um, I, I used to play a lot of Folsom Prison Blues around the campfire with my cousin and his mates. And, uh, and my dad was a a country music historian. He actually interviewed Johnny Cash in his day. And, no. Um, yeah, and Dad was like the first lead guitarist in in Australia. Um, yeah, so he used to sort of 
back up all the big names and uh, mum was a singer, he was a guitarist, that's how they met. So, yeah, we actually had a lot of a lot of that in our childhood, yeah, <laughs> which is great. Your dad shook hands with Johnny Cash. Yes, yeah, and he's um, and and it, we had all the Australian um, uh, hillbillies, all the, the biggest names of the seventies used to camp on our farm outside of Tamworth for two or three months at a time, write their songs, and then hit the road in their caravan around the country again for another year and. Yeah, um, Reg Lindsay, Rick and Phil Carey, Slim Dust used to come over, but Dad didn't like him very much. Yeah, um, yeah, we we knew all we, the McKean sisters and stuff, and yeah, um, all of them, Buddy Williams, <laughs> um, Hank Snow, he interviewed. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> let me let me let me run this lyric by you. Righto. Sitting near you, nothing to say, doesn't mean I don't care. Feelings too strong. Words aren't there. That's actually about my sister. She doesn't know it. I was, go- yeah, I, was go- I was going to tell her at a gig that she eventually came to, one of my sisters. Um, we- we'd had a fight and I wanted to tell her I loved her, but I just was so raw from what I felt was cruelty and what she'd said that I just couldn't tell her. And so I was all geared up to tell her at this gig about 10 years later and she turned up with a friend and I'd practice a speech to tell her. <laughs> and she came to the gig and she talked all the way through it. Oh, so no. She, so I didn't even tell her, so I haven't told her. But I, she knows I love her now. We've got a completely different relationship now. But, yeah, those lines were actually about my older sister. Tell me something with that, Bronnie, with that. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful lyric and I understand the story. And I guess I'm wondering in my mind, with the time you have spent with people in their final hours, do you think we undervalue silence either sitting with somebody, being in somebody's presence and or being in our own presence? Is silence something that we have taken for granted and we've lost track of? Yes. Well, you know, not even taken for granted because it's we've squashed it out. And, um, you know, if we're taking it for granted, then people would actually enjoy it, would have enjoyed it to a point and then forgotten about it. But I feel that there's not enough silence anymore, that it's just been so suppressed because if there's silence, most people are straight onto their phone for a minute. So even though there may not be audible, you know, there might not be sounds, there's still uh, mental noise by looking at your phone or, or whatever. So absolutely, si- silence is ah, oh, it's it's golden. It's it's golden, and the quality of silence, the more you can embrace it, that's where our guidance comes from, and that's where we find our our answers. Not because we say, right, oh, life, I've got ten minutes. I'm going to be quiet for ten minutes. Give me the answer I'm looking for. It's more just uh, just by being quiet. And you become more present and, and it's through the presence that uh, that we get the clearer guidance. You you just mentioned your dad who was a great country artist and a guy who was the front of the game through his interviews and I think he was a radio personality as well. And Yeah, he was. What I found yeah. curious about reading about you and your dad is your dad was very, very well known, top of his game, and the people you've mentioned are our greats of country from the past. Yet it seemed he never acknowledged that title. 
And even for yourself, you were doing a lot, but it wasn't until you said, I'm an artist, that it was a profound step for you to, in self-actualization to, to purely understand your own talent and to give it a go. Is the, I am, in your mind, an important part of us finding our self-actualization, our strengths, our own persona. Do you think those two words have a lot more power than we give them credit? Mm, that's, that's really so well said, Gary. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because we label ourselves whether we, we do so consciously or, or like what you said, what do I tell people I am, you know, in the opening question about being an author. Um, yeah, the, those words I am um, – when I first realised I'm actually a creative person, it was mind-blowing. Despite me growing up with all these this music around me, I'd also grown up with a Monday to Friday life where Dad was an accountant in between all that. And uh, and so I'd gone from a, to a banking background and then I it was such a, an eye-opener and it was those words, I am, like, hang on, I think I am a creative person here. And as soon as I voiced that with I am, then it was. It was, it was such an awakening and, um, and really the birth of, of who I was to become. I heard a podcast oh, about a year ago and this guy said where is as important as why, what or how. Is the where consciously a big thing for you? I think I'm out of place if I don't have nature, and so yes, yeah, and I think it is for all of us on uh, whether whether we're conscious of it or not, because we are. I wrote about that in Five Regrets how we all become products of our our environment, and so having lived in so many places, I've realised there's certain things I need to function at my best. And while I love cities, I mean, I just spent three months in Berlin, and and I, I just. I love Berlin. It's my favourite city now. Um, but I know that to function in a healthy mental way and a healthy physical way, I have to have the sky and I have to have the earth and I have to have water. So, um, yeah, for, for me, the, the where is a, is a huge it, – I think it is for all of us, Gary, but, but having lived – in all sorts of environments, from the desert to a tropical island to to cities to to farms, whatever, I've sort of lived in a lot of almost everything. So, what I've come to realise is that probably I can't think of anywhere that will have absolutely everything. And so you have to work out, okay, if I can't have every single thing I want where I am, what are the things that are most important to me to be happiest? And so those elements, the sky and the earth and the water, for me, are are the factors. I love access to cities. I love access to good organic takeaway food. I love access to, you know, a lot of things, to good music, blah, blah, blah. But but the the things that most, that I can't function long term without uh, are the sky and the earth and the water. It's it that that part of it, that where, and I agree with you, I, I, I am not sure people factor that in when they're building their utopia or dreams for their world. I'm not sure that people factor that in, but in a way it seems to have been imperative for you with the struggles you went through. And I've got to say, 
I wanted to interview you based on The Top Five Regrets. And that was a book that I have been recommending for people for many, many years as one of the, 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 the best books to read to start to recalibrate your world. And uh, my wife put me onto it. She's a fan. And then your publisher, I think it was a publisher or somebody in your office sent me Bloom. And I've got to say, Bronnie, I was absolutely astonished by that book because we hear and we assume the success of an author based on worldwide success of the top five regrets. Then to understand actually what we didn't see and what you went through is absolutely extraordinary. Rheumatoid arthritis and what you went through at the same time as having a young daughter, what is rheumatoid arthritis? And without sugarcoating it, which the book does, how bad did that get? Um, okay, well, it's an autoimmune disease where your you, um, cells attack each other around the joints and it's basically like having your hands and feet set on fire and then you've got to function every day with them as if they are on fire. The pain is that excruciating, or it was. And, um, yeah, it was It was a pretty, <laughs> it was a pretty tough ride. I, I was... Uh, I was very blessed to conceive naturally and quickly at 44. I became a first-time mum at 45, but I didn't um, stay in the relationship. So I was I, I was a single mum from the start of my my motherhood journey, and so I was raising a little girl on my own through all of that. And she was dressing me by the time she was a year and a half old, and. And it was it was horrific. I, I couldn't function. I couldn't stand on grass. Uh, on the I couldn't walk more than a couple of meters unaided. Um, yeah, it was every, every single thing like pe- filling up car at the petrol station. That's that's still one when I fill up the car now. I think, wow, this is a good pump, you know, because. I would, I would just be in tears trying with two hands to hold the pump into the petrol, the nozzle into into the car and squeeze because I, I just had so much pain in my hands and wrists. So just day, not I shouldn't say just, day-to-day life is just impossible to imagine how hard rheumatoid arthritis is when when it's at its worst, which thankfully I'm not. In that place, did you want to? Did you want to give up, Ronnie? Was there a time where you wanted to check out and just join the people that you had spent so much time being of service to? How did you keep going? For my daughter, <laughs> that's the only way. And it was crazy because at the same time as the three three things happened together, my my book took off, the baby was born, and um, and the disease arrived. And so all three were happening at the same time. So it was just manic, and I I just got on with it because I felt I had to. And it wasn't until a couple of years, few years later that I realised actually you don't have to. You can you can slow down and say you need help. And But me, just being me, I thought, well, what choice do I have? I've got a, a little baby. I've got this career I've worked too hard to let go of. And, and I, I look back now and my little girl's six and – and I'm in, you know, I have a much different, my life has improved so much since then and my health has improved so much since then. And and I just think, how on earth did I do it? But I think as a mother, as a parent, you know, when you've got someone dependent on you, you just do. But three of my grandparents lived till their 90s and I, and I remember saying to my best friend, if this is what it's going to be like, 
because I'm in, I'm 51 now. If this is what it's going to be like for another 40 years, I don't want to live it. I want to live to see my daughter grow up. I want to see, you know, perhaps see a grand, meet a grandchild or two. But really, it's not. I, I don't want to do it as much as I can't do it in this level of pain for another 40 years. And so, yeah, certainly I wanted to check out, but. Thankfully, I uh, come through to a really good place with it and see it as actually my, my biggest blessing because it's it's just made me so grounded in myself and so loving with myself and in a, a lot of indirect ways, it was everything I asked for because I've become who I wanted to be and I've only become that through having RA. Do you look back now and think at that time or now you are resilient and gritty or do you just go, well... I had no choice. I just had to get through it and get it done for my little girl. I think in hindsight and because I've learnt to, um, I've developed so much love for for who I am and for my past self especially, I can see that I was gritty and resilient and that I still am. Um, but at the time, uh, no, I was just getting on with it. I was just... As I, as I have with everything that's been thrown to me. And I remember um, a friend once saying to me, he interviewed me and, uh, for his podcast and he said, yeah, Bronnie's had a harder life than most. And I, I remember thinking, have I? You know, <laughs> and it actually made me stop and think, yeah, I guess I have. Wow, wouldn't life be easy without this and this and this and this and this that's happened? Wow, life must be so easy for some people. But because you're living it, you just just get on with it. But I am over it. I mean, I've, I've made it very clear to life, okay, that's it. I'm, I'm fo- focusing now on ease and joy, yeah. <laughs> but it makes for a great country song though, doesn't it, Bronnie? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, would you share the lesson that a lady called Grace, who was 86 years old, Grace shared a lesson with you bedside that changed the direction of your life. Can you share that story with us and the lesson? Yeah, sure, sure. Grace was tiny. She was about really fierce. Um, she had been in a very unhappy marriage for over 50 years and her husband was a real tyrant, she, she told me, and her family confirmed. And... She just wanted to travel around Australia and didn't have, you know, huge dreams, but that was something she always wanted to do. And then, but couldn't do it because he wouldn't do anything. And then um, her husband became ill and went into a nursing home. And so she saw a very brief glimpse, like, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take a bus tour, maybe not around the whole of Australia, but at least get out of Sydney and, and see a little bit of the country. But within three weeks of him going into a nursing home, she was diagnosed with terminal cancer, terminal lung cancer, and she'd never smoked and he'd smoked in the house the whole time. And so she just had so much regret and about wishing that she'd lived a life true to herself, not the life that other people had expected of her because her generation stayed married because what would people think and you don't want to shame your family and all that sort of thing. And she made me, she squeezed my hand so tightly and made me promise her that I would always be brave and live a life true to myself, not the life other people expected. And I made a commitment to her and to myself on that day and it has stayed with me ever since because I loved her so dearly and she's still my favourite of all the patients I looked after 
I, I loved her the most. And um, and I I'm still influenced by that because she she was just in such genuine anguish and despair and self loathing because of the choices she hadn't made or had or hadn't made and that it, it shaped everything that I was to do from then on. If I could just finish with this final piece, Bronnie, that it's just such a beautiful story and message that Grace left with you. You've said that when living by trust and intuitive guidance, life's signposts become impossible to ignore. Tell me what a signpost looks like. Give me an example of what I'm looking for. To see the signpost, firstly, to see the signpost, we need space in our lives. We, we can't just rush through or we miss the signpost from life. So we, we have to create moments without, with, with, free of plans and actually schedule in a little bit of time here and there just to let our lives breathe in between all the plans. And so signposts look like... Um, you're trying to make something work professionally and it's just one door after another, after another, after another, after another closes. And so is is there any encouragement to say keep going or is it completely door closed? So for me, it took 14 years for me to get my work out there and for my book to take off. But if it had all been no, I would have quit and found something else. But but I, I just had this, I had little niggles of encouragement, enough along the way, every time I think this is a waste of time, I'm going to quit, then life would send me a rejection letter that said, look, we can't publish you, but we really love it. Try this publisher or try whatever. Um, and so it can be like that. It can be... It, more often than not, it comes through other people where we have a conversation with someone and they'll say, oh, I know someone who could help you there. Or it may just be, and I say this in the song you quoted in the song Words, that it could just be, um, oh, no, it's not in words, it's in Let Yourself Be Surprised, one of my other songs. Um, it can just be words from a stranger. They may just say something as an offhand comment in, in passing or in a you know, someone at the grocery store and and that can be your signpost. That can be the answer you're looking for, like, oh, I never thought of it from that way. And, yeah, just life saying, okay, you know, open your eyes, listen here, <laughs> we're actually on your side, we've been trying to get through to you for a long time, <laughs> but you need to stop and, you know, not not control how the signposts are going to come. So, it can come, you know. I mean, it can be as cliched as a as a, a words on a bus driving past or something like that as well. But generally, I find most signposts come from other people, or it's just when life will not open a door, no matter how hard I push. Then it's like, okay, I'm I'm pushing the wrong door. So. Without holding up, Bronnie, because I know you have to go, I, I guess just to finish that off, though, that the signpost presents, but the space is enabling you to notice the signpost. Yeah. Is it then a yeah. matter of having that space to contemplate, consider, allow it to sit in your subconscious mind and then ultimately make a decision to take a step or to acknowledge it and leave it, that, that must be the next part to this. Well, that, that is a part of it. But even before that is the space allows you to recognise the signpost, not to know what to do with it, you know, just to have this. If you don't have any space, you don't see the signpost at all. You're just, you know, blindly trying to find every answer yourself and trying to control every step of life based on the fear of how you're going to work it out 
Whereas if you let go and allow yourself some space, then you see the signposts which become shortcuts because it's life supporting you. And so then that space, that habit of space does do that. It then intuitively helps you say, okay, right, hmm, that was an interesting thing that woman just said to me. Okay, okay, I'm going to sit with that and just let it, uh, let it stew for a while and and then because you've got space and the space might be filled with just a nice leisurely walk or, you know, something just nice that doesn't have an agenda, then your thoughts can untangle and actually find clarity through what you've, what the signpost has revealed. One quick thing to finish up the big question. Do you still trampoline? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I, do I do trampoline. It's, it's about two metres out my window from where I'm sitting right now and I trampoline, I swim even in this cold weather and um, swim outdoors inspired by Wim Hof, the Iceman, and oh, I right. ride my push bike and all of those things, you know, for a woman who couldn't even walk confidently four or five steps a few years ago uh, are amazing and I'm also um, completely pharmaceutical drug free as well. So it's it's a pretty nice place to be and from where I've come from. There's a lot of science behind that, the trampoline thing. I know Tony Robbins is a big one for rebounding. A number of people we've had on the show rebound and or trampoline. And, of course, the Wim Hof uh, cold thermogenesis, there's a lot of science behind that. So um, it's interesting. But the other, the other thing I like about trampoline is when I see you or read you doing it, you seem to be smiling and having a ball doing it. So that's, that's oh, one of those fun things to, to do, that. isn't it? I mean, how can it not be when I, you know, I couldn't even get on the trampoline and now yeah. I dump and I I just focus on joy now, Gary. That's That's the bottom line for me. Is yeah. this going to bring me joy? Nah, not doing it. Yeah. <laughs> Derek is this going it? to bring me joy? Yes, then it's a priority, a non-negotiable priority. Hell, yeah. hell yeah or no, right? Yeah, that's about it. <laughs> well, Bronnie, this has been a real joy. I've been looking forward to this for some time. Uh, fabulous books, The Top Five Regrets of the Dying, Bloom, the new memoir, is just an amazing story. Where where do you want to send people, Bronnie, who want to know more about you, your story, the books, where do they go to? Um, come to bronnieware.com because there's also a lot of really great tools I've created where people don't just learn through my own example but can apply the tools to to their their own lives individually. So there's there's free lessons, a free program there and a, and a really powerful six-week program as well. So, And also there's just snippets of inspiration for them, for anyone to find on there. So just bronnieware.com, that's, that's the mothership. We interrupt this program to bring you a special bulletin. <laughs> <laughs> the Mojo Radio Show. Now. All right, come on, open and honest. What's your biggest fear that you'll regret on your deathbed? Ah, uh, that I wasn't there. Really? Yeah. yeah. Is, that, is that a long-term one or is that just more recently since you've had kids or? Yeah, since I've had kids. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? It's on, probably on my list, on my list of things. My biggest mm. one would probably be that I didn't have that extra Tim Tam. Anyways. <laughs> The Mojo Radio Show. Now, just some interesting research that I have been pondering that I just wanted to share off the back of what we spoke about because that was a pretty heavy show with Bronnie, just to lighten things up a tad. Mm. Trampolining, or what we know as rebounding. My now, kids are good at that. Well, yeah, we spoke to Bronnie about that and it was part of her therapy. And although when you see photos of Bronnie on the trampoline, it's an enormous amount of fun, but I don't think people understand the great health benefits that 
it so whether it be rebounding, which is the small little trampoline thing you put in someone's house, or a proper trampoline outside, but it has really good it has really good health benefits for the lymphatic system. So what happens is it, 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 there's a lymph fluid and it circulates around your system. And as it circulates, it increases your white blood cell activity, which boosts the immune system. Now, this is all part of the regulatory system inside all of us. And they reckon that the benefit of trampolining is that it helps this lymph system because of the changes in gravitational pull, so going up and down the trampoline. And this is also interesting, it can burn more calories than walking or jogging. You wouldn't have thought that, would you? No, I'm heading out the back once we record the show. (laughs) Well, they said when tested, the work to perform trampoline exercises at the equivalent level of effort as you would when you're running, you actually can burn more calories and for the fuller-figured sound engineer, there's less injury worries because it's low weight-bearing on the joints. So all in all, and also rebounding increases the oxygen uptake, so more oxygen can reach the cells due to the change in gravity. So what wow. do you reckon about all that, mate? I reckon uh, the kids' trampoline out the back's going to get a bit of a workout and possibly not by them. <laughs> and it's funny because, no, well, it's true. It's not silly. I have been testing this and going out to our trampoline. And just uh, one thing I would say, folks, is uh, your trampoline has to be a good one. And there is a certain, it's 27 odd springs you've got to have to be safe or something or other. And I have seen a lot of broken limbs from trampolining. <laughs> so I think rebounding is probably a safer option. But if you don't have a rebounder and you can find yourself a trampoline, have a crack. There are scientific, there's scientific evidence behind this to say that trampolining is good for you. But if you want to test it, go and find a trampoline, go at the backyard like Robbo's going to do, jump on and just trampoline for 10 minutes and then start walking on solid ground afterwards and tell me you don't feel different <laughs> like you walk, isn't it? It's like you're walking on the moon. Absolutely. And the added bonus is you can keep, a, keep an eye on what the neighbours are up to in their backyard. Right. The Mojo <laughs> Radio Show. So I thought we'd go out with a bit of jump music. Cool. Van Halen, is that where we're going? I hope so. Well, in a minute. But what's funny <laughs> is I put jump into Spotify and I got this. You know who that is? Yeah, that's crisscross. <laughs> so You're not going to play that, that, are you? Nah. Surely. No, nah, that's, thank that's you. not Mojo Radio Show. <laughs> Let's get out with this. We're out.
The Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybirtwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.